0: hi and welcome to get your damn flu shot a podcast exploring the most pertinent topics in public health today we're your hosts gianna muslimas and i'm diana rubin our mission is to close the gap between public health and the public one listener at a time Today on Get Your Damn Flu Shot, you'll be hearing from a leading scientist and world expert in infectious disease, Dr. Larry Schlesinger. He's here to talk about some of the latest updates on the international race to find the COVID-19 vaccine. He gives us a fascinating view on the research that's going on at his institute and some of their findings from the animal model testing that they've been conducting. Shiana and I have a great conversation with him about the importance of scientific accuracy and community understanding. His message to everyone, science takes time. We need to be patient.
1: Hello, Dr. Schlesinger. Hi,
0: how are you? you? Good, good, good. Are you actually at the Institute right now?
2: Nope, I'm actually in my home office. So I just put on a virtual screen. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Totally. got me. I couldn't
1: oh even mind. tell.
0: So yeah. yeah, Gianna and I are so, so excited for you to come on here. Right. This was kind of a platform we started just a few weeks ago, realizing the information gap, especially within our age group. We brought it to Columbia and it kind of gave us the green light and we're trying to run with it. So it's been kind of cool. A lot of learning curves, but overall pretty cool.
2: Well, that's fantastic. That's, it sounds good to me. Getting the public engaged in this is everything. And your generation, it's about infectious diseases beyond COVID-19. I mean, we have to think differently about this discipline and get more people to understand what it means.
1: So we wanted to just jump right in and get started. Diana, do you want to introduce Dr. Schlesinger and then we can get started with questions? Perfect.
0: So like I said, thank you so much, Dr. Schlesinger, for joining us. To our audience, we are joined with CEO and President of Texas Biomedical Institute, which is an independent research institute and a global leader working on exclusively infectious diseases from HIV, malaria, tuberculosis, Ebola. It is their Bread and butter, and of course, now with the arrival of COVID 19, they have been working night and day to try to help combat this disease. And I'd like to give our audience a little brief background about Dr. Schlesinger as well. So he is, as I mentioned, CEO and president of Texas Biomed. He is also a leading physician scientist and prolific scholar. His studies focus on tuberculosis and lung biology. He has served on advisory boards for universities and the NIH and the FDA, and has been continuously funded by the NIH. so he is a leading expert now working on the COVID response, and we're so excited that he's here today.
1: Thank you. Great. Dr. Schlesinger, we're just going to jump right in. Do you mind speaking a little bit to what your personal involvement and also what Texas Biomed's involvement has been on the front lines of the COVID response?
2: Well, first of all, it's great to be here and to be with both of you. I would start by saying that I'm honored to be here. I was an undergraduate at Cornell University and went to medical school in New Jersey at Rutgers. And at the time, classrooms didn't look like they did today. You sat in the lecture, just lectured for an hour, and you got bored. But the only small group in medical school for me was an infectious disease doctor named Mel Weinstein. And I just got extremely excited about infectious disease as a problem. And from a clinical side, the fact that it's often detective work to figure out which bug is causing an illness in a human. I was so pretty early in my career that infectious disease was important and that it was something I wanted to pursue. So that's how my career has evolved. I practiced clinical medicine for 26 years seeing infectious disease patients. And then in 2011, I decided that I wanted to make a change. I'd always done science, but now I wanted to dedicate the rest of my career to science and education. And so as active as I've been in innovative research in the laboratory and I've trained a lot of people, I also am passionate about educating the next generation, and that's been a big part of my DNA, if you will. And I have, as a result, been through several outbreaks. This is not my first. And if you go back and find some quotes from me, 20 years, I was talking about the next pandemic, very much like Dr. Tony Fauci, who, by the way, I know personally very well through my work at the NIH. So this is something that has been a problem for a long time. But my passion is not just science. Science is the bedrock. Rigorous science, as has already been pointed out, is the bedrock of anything we do in the clinic. And basic science always has to be there. But we need to get to the clinic. So it's got to be more than just discovery. And Texas Biomedical Research Institute is really a one of a kind. It doesn't really exist anywhere else in the country based on the fact that it has these incredible facilities that allow us to do what's called biocontainment research so we can study live COVID 19. It has one of seven national primate research centers. So we have the ability to study animal models all the way from a mouse to a monkey. And then it's a non for profit in the private sector where, as CEO, we are the antithesis of bureaucracy. Our goal is speed. And we also have a long standing history of working with the FDA on bringing things to market. So we do discovery science and we do what's called contract science, working with partners. And so I feel like we can make a real contribution and we can do it quickly. That's the starting point.
0: I have a reaction to one of the things you just said. Hearing you kind of talk about how you decided to go into infectious disease, it reminded me about my experience in deciding to go into public health. I know Gianna was thinking very seriously about medical school. For me, I was thinking about psychiatry, psychology. So we both get that question all the time and we talked about it on a, another episode. Why are you studying public health? The Same thing, why infectious disease? Why not surgery? And I think that just goes to show that both of these fields need more community understanding. And I read an article of yours and you were talking about the importance of this community understanding and being proactive and being prepared. One of the other things you said in terms of community understanding, people see cancer, people see Alzheimer's, but they can't see infectious disease because it's in the air. Can you talk a little bit about the work that Texas Biomed is doing around COVID-19 and how you and the Institute are working to help with this community understanding and getting our society ready for maybe the next pandemic.
2: Well, I will tell you my life journey is to demystify infectious disease for the public. So that is central to my core. In fact, I'm writing a book now that whose goal is to essentially infectious disease for dummies. So there are two parts. Let me just talk about infectious disease as an entity. So I mean, at least one British economist puts infectious disease number one killer of humans by 2050. This is a growing problem that all of us, the three of us need to be facing going forward. And it's really a coming together of a lot of bad things. I mean, the population is growing, the planet is not. The intermixture like COVID-19 of animals and humans and pockets in this world, increasing. Not everywhere, but increasing. Super bugs, no drugs, increasing. And then we're a global society where there are no barriers. And so we're going to see this problem again and again and again, and that's itself an issue. But the other part, and I just want to get this in before I talk about text Biomet and COVID-19, is the fact that we know more and more about how infection triggers chronic inflammation and how chronic inflammation underlies a variety of diseases. 36% of cancer patients suffer or die from infectious diseases Mm -hmm. and every week almost in science magazine we hear about another infectious trigger of cancer same thing with autoimmune disease inflammatory bowel disease cardiovascular disease Mm -hmm. so it's not just infectious disease itself but it's it's linked to inflammation if somebody is diagnosed with systemic lupus erythematosus sle and autoimmune disease it could very well be that it was an infectious disease that triggered it, right? We're born with our genomes. Well, that tells us only a part of the story. That's why 23andMe and sequencing our DNA doesn't really give you the answers because genes create are expressed under environmental pressures. And what I'm saying to you is infection can trigger the expression of some mutations that Mm -hmm. enable you to be predisposed to develop diabetes or Mm. a cancer or an autoimmune disease. So that's not the bug itself. That's what the bug can cause. So that's important. COVID-19. So the mission, I came to the Institute in 2017 and our Institute had not declared itself with a core mission that the public would understand. And so we declared our mission and our mission is to protect you, your families, and the global community from the threat of infectious diseases. So one sentence. That tells it all. So everything we do is infectious disease, inflammation, immunity. That's what we're made for. So with that mission, we started changing our campus and built actually a biocontainment facility in 13 months before COVID-19. We started recruiting faculty in this area, like a well-known molecular virologist from the University of Rochester. We were doing all this. So one could argue we were prepared for COVID-19. And then when COVID-19 showed its head, it took us all of about 30 seconds to know we were going to make a difference because that is who we are. So we formed a team of seven outstanding scientists, no disciplines. We don't have departments. That's not how science operates. We just put the best people in a room together from different walks, science, and we said we're in. And we brought in 30 staff, mission critical, to establish our COVID-19 research team. And then it was, where can we really make a difference for humans? And for us, it was pretty easy. Our first experiment was going to be exploit our expertise in developing animal models. And animal models are essential. You don't hear about them that much on the news every night because it's a little tricky to really promote animal models. There's some people have quite a bit of reaction to that. Sure. But I can tell you that they play an absolutely critical role in bringing any new drug or vaccine to market. They're part of the solution. And so we initiated our studies by studying three species of primates, three different ones, so we could, just like humans, figure out which ones are more or less susceptible to COVID-19. First of all, we had to grow up the virus and sequence it uh, and make sure we had a real virulent strain of COVID-19 that didn't have too many mutations or deletions in it.
0: Where did you get it from? I'm just curious.
2: Our strain was originally from the CDC. Okay. Centers for Disease Control. It had been a banks. It's one that most of the places studying COVID-19 uses. There are other strains out there. But the problem with COVID-19 is if you don't grow properly, it'll mutate and eventually could maybe lose its virulence, this disease-causing properties. So we, by doing these, what we call well-documented studies, because we do studies that the FDA pays attention to, we were able to grow stocks properly and the virus was intact. So it was critical for us to do our studies. We then infected animals in our containment facilities, three different species, and we studied old and young because the outbreak really has shown that the elderly are more susceptible. So we wanted Mm -hmm. to mirror that as an independent variable.
0: Wow. So can you report any of the findings from the study?
2: The study's almost done. We're writing the paper now. We do have positive results. Two of the three species we've studied are susceptible with mild to moderate COVID-19 infection that resembles humans. One wow. species is completely resistant, and we can learn by that as well. And that, that was our first contribution.
1: I'm just curious, did age prove to be a risk factor in this species as well?
2: So less than we thought, at least in the animal model to date. Now, we are still finishing two groups right now, so I can't give the definitive answer. But mm-hmm. the hypothesis was that they would be more susceptible. In a few different parameters, they are, but not Big difference at this point.
1: You mentioned that speed is one of your biggest strengths. Would you define it as a race to get the vaccine out there? Or have you noticed a type of partnership amongst the scientific community?
2: Okay. It's a race because we all want to help all the people who are dying. It's, I mean, it's tragic what's going on. And it's a global race. And our investigators talk with people throughout the world almost every day The World Health Organization has a committee meeting every week. We have a member on that committee. So it is necessary competition. So very positive because that's what drives excellence. And everyone has the same mission. We're also collaborative. So we are collaborating with other places and doing this. So it's not insular. But having said that, let's take the Oxford vaccine. Adrian Hill is the lead of this vaccine. I've known him for a very long time. He's had this platform for a long time trying to create a malaria vaccine, and he is rallying a lot of partners, and you're hearing about large clinical trials by September. Look, I am as hopeful as the next scientist that we're going to have a vaccine by January, but just understand that this going back to what it takes, there are so many opportunities for this to fail. I mean, we're Now we're going to manufacture a vaccine before it's even been tested. And that's new. So the speed thing. But remember, the time to develop a new therapy or vaccine is not in the setting of a pandemic, right? I mean, this is behind the eight ball to begin with. Science doesn't operate that way. Remember, science fails 90% of the time before you get a winner. And we're trying to get a winner every day. So I think that it's incredibly exciting that the global community of scientists are working hard, complementing each other, so it's healthy competition. But at the same time, there's parts of the story that aren't being told.
0: For sure. I think one of the things that I was about to ask you, which kind of goes into this, is Really, just we are being overwhelmed with scientific information right now. I mean, it feels like we're drinking from a fire hose. And a lot of this information is not peer-reviewed, not FDA-approved, inaccurate data. It's a bunch of claims, and there's no validity. And I'm sure you, more so than anyone else, can speak to this.
2: You hit it, Diana. And I'll tell you what, I'm very bothered by this. I'm concerned that when all of this settles, that the credibility of science will be undermined because the public's going to hear about hydroxychloroquine. There was never data behind that. Remdesivir, okay. With only
1: 20 people in the study. (laughs) And the
2: vaccine study out of Oxford was six animals in two groups.
0: We're concerned too, because we have our friends going out saying, oh, well, I got the antibody test and I'm positive, so I'm just going to go get herd immunity. So it is very concerning, just the misinformation.
2: I think it's a big problem. Look, you all probably know about something called bioarchives. This came on the scene in 2013. So when I write a paper, right, what do I do? I go looking for the best journal I can find, just like you guys are writing as part of your training. And then I want to submit to a journal and it undergoes the time-honored element of peer review, right? You get... Experts in the field criticizing your work, making it better, so that when something is published, it's been verified, right? That is the process. In 2013, a new process was launched, and this is this public repository. So now when I write a paper, I submit it to a journal for peer review, but I can simultaneously get it in the public arena, not vetted, and Bioarchives. archives. And most of what's happening today is reporters reading Bioarchives. archives trying to find anything new out there. Now, bioarchives was laudable in its goal, right? Younger generations said, look, for me to publish, it takes nine months to a year to get something in print. I want my fellow scientists to see that work faster. So bioarchives was invented really with a goal for scientists to read each other's work and decide in the public arena whether it's valid or not. But now it's been taken to a new level That's a lot of disinformation that's going on out there. The antibody test has gone all over the place. I mean, in the hopes of getting a test fast, the FDA loosened up some ruling about this. We have a cottage industry, and we don't even know what immunity looks like for COVID-19 yet. We don't even know what protection looks like yet, really. We have some suspicions based on what we know about coronaviruses, But we don't really even know what it looks like yet so the antibody test is also another hot mess right now
0: is it normal to have that hot of a mess i mean you've been dealing with infectious disease for almost 30 years have you seen anything like this
2: not really i mean this is about the most on steroids i've ever seen with this information and there's, you know, it's in a political realm also, I have to right. say. So, I mean, politics and science, I mean, if you are looking at a collision there right now, you would be seeing it. I think intentions are good, but this amount of disinformation is about as severe as I've ever seen.
1: We've seen much more lethal viruses like Ebola and HIV, yet nothing has swept the globe to this degree. Is there anything novel on the immunological side of the virus that is presenting differently? Or is it really social factors that have completely escalated this? Mm -hmm. That's a great question.
2: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think what's impressed, a couple of things. One is that it is pretty infectious. It's been deemed to be, so now you're the geek in me, right? I'm a lung biologist. There's this ratio that people talk about, about if you have COVID-19, how many other people do you infect? And the ratio is somewhere between two and three others. A real bona fide aerosol transmissible bacteria like tuberculosis or bacteria, this is a virus, or bacteria like TB is one case can infect 15 others. Measles is about the same, one in 15. So from that standpoint, you say, well, this isn't as infectious. But even today, there are some papers that are suggesting maybe we don't know about transmissibility and maybe it is more aerosol rather than droplet. So that infectiousness is what distinguishes this one. It clearly has jumped from animals to humans. It does seem to interact pretty tightly with immune cells. There's a couple of receptors that have been published. The thing about SARS is it kind of died out. A SARS vaccine never got done because the population of infected people kind of died out. MERS caused a lot of disease, but it was sporadic. It wasn't worldwide. it had to do something about its intermediate host but I'm impressed by the kind of durability of this virus and its infectiousness. But on the other hand, there's something interesting happening. And that is that look at the countries where the highest cases exist. We're hearing about South Korea, China, Italy, the United States. That's not typically what such a global outbreak looks like. I guess I don't have to tell you guys, it's usually Africa, right, Mm -hmm. and India where the populace is as dense as anywhere in the world. So there's something interesting going on there, right? There's a theory about that, actually.
0: What is the theory? I mean, if you could... Well, so the
2: theory is that India and Africa have a lot of tuberculosis and they get the vaccine for tuberculosis called the BCG vaccine. It's a live attenuated vaccine. And that stimulates a certain type of immune response. The hypothesis right now is that if you're stimulated by the vaccine for TB, that your cells are conditioned, okay, and part of that is a term called trained immunity, conditioned in a way that makes the host more protected from COVID-19. That's a hypothesis out there.
1: I'm jumping out of my chair because I was actually dying to ask you this question. I saw non-peer-reviewed articles claiming that Now they're testing the TB-BCG vaccine, which we don't even use in America, but as an infectious disease student, I don't understand how we could use a vaccine for a different virus. Do you have any opinions on this theory? So
2: BCG, first of all, it's not like right now, some of the vaccines you're hearing about for COVID-19 are pieces of the virus, right? I mean, there's either the spike protein or mRNA to make the spike protein. Those are, in a sense, subunit. They're pieces of the virus. BCG, Mycobacterium bovis bacille, is a live attenuated bacteria, right? That's decades ago was passage to not cause disease in humans, but stimulate the immune response. It's still the number one vaccine in the world. It's been given out since 1924. So there was a breakthrough in science a few years ago, and it was called trained immunity. There's the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system, right? Higher vertebrates have the adaptive system. That's what makes humans so different than earlier species. But it's the innate system that more or less keeps us healthy on a day-in and day-out basis. So it was felt the innate system never had memory. Like, it's not how vaccines work. Vaccines work by stimulating the adaptive immune system. Mm -hmm. But it appears that, and BCG is the winner here, that BCG can more generally generate these epigenetic marks in the immune cells to condition them differently. If you're able to fundamentally change innate immune cells as a result of the BCG vaccine, then you can raise the hypothesis that that vaccine, even though specific, we think for TB, actually is more general in conditioning the innate immune system to be revved up and more resistant to other bugs like viruses. And there's quite a bit of science out there on that. So yes, this is one where a specific vaccine seems to have more general application, which is pretty exciting. Now again, do we know this? It's theory, we're still waiting for that science, but at least there's some rationale.
1: I know the Ebola vaccine was a world record at four years. So I'm having a hard time understanding, is it feasible that we could have a vaccine in January?
2: We have to be extremely lucky It's unlikely, but I won't say never. I think that there's so many chances for what we're doing to fail that I'd like to condition the public to understand that it takes a lot longer to do all the rigorous science necessary to prove that a vaccine is safe and effective. And so personally, I don't think it's going to be this quick. I'm just like everyone else, hoping, and you can cut some corners, but not all corners. But look, you want the vaccine to be safe. Let's just think about before COVID-19, if you were to interview me, one of the topics you would ask me about as an infectious disease expert is, Larry, what do you think about these anti-vaxxers, right? What do you think about all these people who don't want to take a vaccine? Well. If we're going to spend billions of dollars to create a COVID-19 vaccine, right, we certainly want people to take it. So the reason why people didn't want to take the measles vaccine was based on one faulty paper, right, that questioned whether it was safe. Well, so we better prove safety here, or people are immediately going to say, I'm not taking that vaccine.
0: That's exactly why we have started this platform. We recognize the importance of getting people, especially people our age, to be patient with science and they aren't understanding that. And so hopefully with conversations like this, they can, but I want to ask you if you could give the entire country one piece of advice, but even more specifically, if you could give my age group, millennials, one piece of advice, what would you tell them?
2: I would tell them to remember that everyone is at risk. There is no one that has an armor around them when it comes to infectious diseases and that people need to take this seriously Mm -hmm. and personally. And as a result, think about health and think about the importance of these basic measures of hand-washing and social distancing because they're time-honored, they're proven. At your age, everyone is the picture of health. It isn't going to be me, right? Mm -hmm. I can play volleyball in a group setting. It isn't going to be me. (laughs) But the truth is people feel they're invincible until they get sick.
0: Or they're asymptomatic. Or
2: they're asymptomatic and (laughs) passing on infection. But I want people to think about being personal about this and being responsible, that every single person has a role to play Mm -hmm. in helping the community. And And yes, it isn't just about you, because as you just said, if you're asymptomatic and somebody 80 years old, you know, happens to catch it, they're very vulnerable. So it's about also understanding those around you and being conscious about that. That's what I would say. On the science side, you guys have it. The disinformation undermines the credibility of science and science needs to be performed in a way that's validated by a peer group. It's been vetted and that the method has been fully executed, and mm-hmm. that takes time. So, another thing I'm excited about Texas Biomed has community supporters that are passionate about our science. I love this. This is a unique feature of our institute where we are directly interfacing with our public partners. Mm-hmm. What I would love to see is that you catch steam with this and we develop an organizational structure about talking basics about science and infectious diseases and that Texas Biomed has a role to play. I actually think this is our best shot at sustaining research in infectious disease after COVID-19. It will be what you're doing right now. Talking about science, let's keep talking about the importance of infectious disease in everyone's life. It's the only disease that affects 100% of us. Not a single person is immune to infectious disease during their lifetime. Now, for the vast majority, it's a mild infection. You get over it. But what if that mild infection actually triggered diabetes 20 years later? You wouldn't know that. So we have a job to do. We should roll up our sleeves and keep at it. I mean, I think this is really important.
0: Absolutely. I mean, everything you said is super exciting and very kind of on brand with what we're trying to yeah, I mean, Lisa, accomplish for, here. Yeah, I
2: mean, actually, we have to, uh, we also have to remove some of the misperceptions about Texas, don't we?
0: Yeah, We do. And that is a very important point.
2: Because yeah, we could <laughs> ask Diana, what do you know about Texas, right?
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> My answer would have been a lot different a year yeah. ago before I knew Diana. <laughs> so that kind of leads us to our last question. We like to ask sure. all of our guests is what has been your favorite snack during quarantine? <laughs> We weren't expecting that one.
2: I know. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't. Let's see. I don't know that it's a snack.
1: Okay. But, it can be anything.
2: Well, I mean, it's got to be pizza. So, it's uh, a
1: snack. It can be a snack, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> well,
2: Cheez Its. Cheez Its mm. are good. And uh, there's a local pizza place I really like, and they've remained open so I can. I can go pick it up as a takeout. But I would say that would be my answer.
1: I'm jealous. I that's tell- a good one. You're not lactose intolerant. <laughs> oh,
2: there you go.
0: <laughs> so I, I'm assuming you have, have you given into the Tex-Mex, all the queso?
2: Well, I moved in 17 and I would say that my waistline gave into it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, now I'm working very hard to be losing it.
0: So yes. <laughs> yeah.
2: That, that's the carbs in Texas are definitely, they abound.
0: Yeah. She wants to move to Texas permanently. So we might both come work oh, there for you. you know. <laughs> at the,
2: I love the fact that you guys are in public health and uh, I think you have a career ahead of you.
0: Dr. Schlesinger, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on here. Uh, thank you.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Thanks for listening to get your damn flu shot. So this is the part where I tell you all to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. You can find us on all major host platforms like iTunes and Spotify. But really, what we ask of you in a time like this, we need your help. The world needs your help to get the word out there. So don't just listen. Share with your family, your friends, and your pets. Send them a link so we can all stay connected. Email us at gydfspodcast at gmail.com to join the conversation. And uh, remember to get your damn flu shots.